Father in heaven, even from the very beginning of the Bible, we see the way in which your people doubt you. We have a tendency to doubt your goodness, to doubt your words, to not accept what you say. And so as we look at this difficult passage together this morning, we pray that you might help us to be those who trust. To know that you are good, that you are just, and so to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. And back in the days before the internet... If you wanted to find a phone number from an organisation or a company or a service, you would, you would have these big yellow books called the Yellow Pages, imaginatively named. They're yellow, full of pages. And in one TV advert, I think it's from the 80s, but it makes me feel very old, and some of you will feel very young now, um, it's the day after a massive, messy house party, and the son, whose parents are going to arrive back the next day, wakes up, a little worse for wear, and he finds um, some strangers in his house. And more than that, he finds he's got to tidy up. He knows his parents are coming back. And then, more than that even, he finds he's got to ring the French polishers, um, because there's a huge scratch on his parents' expensive antique table. Is this ringing any bells for anybody who didn't work in marketing? Thank you. Okay. And so you need the yellow pages, don't you? You need to find someone local who's going to come and sort it out for you. Do you see the point? The yellow pages could help him because he knew what was coming. He knew his parents were returning. He knew what he needed to do. He knew what really mattered. And he, he could have sat around watching TV that morning, I guess, or reading the weekend papers, or with his new mates, have a big fry-up. But here's the thing. When you know what's coming then, then you know what matters now. And so to save his life, and to not be grounded for the foreseeable future, he calls in the French polishers, and they get tidying. His parents are coming home. Of course he's going to get ready. When you know what's coming then, you know what matters now. And I think that truth sits somewhere near the heart of 2 Thessalonians. When you're clear on what the future holds, you're clear on what to give your life to now. And maybe the problem is we've lost sight of what's coming. And so we're not really sure what to give our lives to now. What should we put first? What really matters now? And we kind of bumble along just doing whatever comes up next and don't really think much about it. We don't really have the plan. And half the time we're stressed and busy and trying to cram in all the experiences we can. And half the time we're not really sure we can be bothered to get out of bed. What matters now? My family? My career? My hobbies? My house? My car? What is it? The big truth at the heart of 2 Thessalonians is that Jesus is coming back, says Paul. Jesus will return. And Paul says when he comes back, he's going to judge. Not like the, not like the street preacher on Corn Market with the radio mic and the speaker and yelling at you, Jesus is going to come back soon, and you kind of walk past shaking your head or trying to avoid eye contact. Do you do that? If we're honest, 
interesting, isn't it? The day of judgment doesn't, doesn't it just sound a little bit like something from another era? A, a truth for, for yesteryear, but not really something for the 21st century. We've kind of moved on from those primitive ideas of, of fear of judgment. Maybe we think he's not, he's not really going to come back and judge, is he? Turns out perhaps the Thessalonians were, were hearing a similar story as well. It's there in verse 3 and 4. Do you see they are suffering for their faith? We, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. It's an interesting phrase. If you know one Thessalonians, you'll know the more and more thing. Paul is, is excited by this church because they keep getting better and better at loving each other or looking after each other. Therefore, verse 4, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith. In all the persecutions and trials you are enduring, that they know Jesus is coming back, and so they're prepared to take the flack for it. They're, they're having a hard time, and it, it sounds like it genuinely hurts them. Or maybe someone comes along whispering in their ears, don't, guys, just... Just dial it down a bit. Don't take things quite so seriously. Of course, he's, he's not really going to come back, they say. And so Paul says, hold fast. Keep going. Keep your nerve. Stand firm. It's important, isn't it? Imagine the guy at the beginning of the sermon with the yellow pages, and he finds out, oh, I've got my dates wrong. Parents aren't coming back today. They're coming back in, in, a, in a week, coming back in a month. Or maybe worse, his, his parents' plans have changed. They're not going to come back at all. D does he care about the yellow pages anymore? Does he care about the French polishers? Of course not. It's not worth it. I'll watch TV and make a fry up. But Paul wants us to see Jesus is coming back, and so it is worth it. It's worth giving your life to, says Paul. And as this little church wobbles and a buffeted, rather like trying to stand still in, a, in the midst of Storm Dennis, he, he urges them to stand firm. With all this buffeting going on, stand firm. You get that idea in 2 verse 15. I think it sits really at the heart of the letter. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm, because Jesus is coming back. The king will return, and when you know what's happening then, you know what matters now. And so stand firm, says Paul. Three reasons why from our verses this morning. Three reasons why. The first one from five to seven. I'm, I'm going to be honest. They kind of overlap slightly in terms of verses, so it's not clear-cut. But firstly, five to seven, Jesus is just. Jesus is just. I wonder how you found it as Peter read it for us, some of those ideas. I think for some of us, it makes us recoil and ask questions because passages like this stretch our understanding of who Jesus is. We're, we're selective in our grasp of Jesus. We like to think of him as a friend or an example or a teacher or a brother or saviour or from Romans 8, our co-heir. He's full of grace. He's full of love. He's full of wisdom. He's the kind of guy you want to follow. And yet, here we are reminded that we cannot domesticate him. He is not tame. 
And I wonder if too often we try and sort of airbrush out the bits we don't like very much. We kind of come along as a PR consultant giving Jesus some ideas of how he might like to just tone things down a bit to be a bit more appealing. And yet look at verses 5 to 7 and... Is this the kind of Jesus you follow and love and worship? Because, do you know, it's the Jesus of the Bible, which means it's really the only Jesus there is. But I wonder sometimes if it's like we're, we're at the cinema, we're in the pick and mix zone, and we're creating the Jesus we like, we're picking out all our favourite bits, and we leave kind of licorice and stuff we don't like very much behind. We're not so keen on that, so we... We just have a bag full of a lovely Jesus that we really appreciate. And yet Paul says here, you can't do that. We just can't do that. And I wonder if we had the bigger, more complete grasp of Jesus, if we stretched our understanding of him a bit, I wonder if we might be a bit more inclined to to not just blend in in life. Have a look down at 5 to 7. See the way some of this stretching needs to happen as we comprehend who Jesus is. Just notice the day of judgment is real. And it's real, says Paul, because God is just. And his persecution is evidence that God's judgment is right, that there will be a day of judgment. Now, justice is an interesting word. We need to think about what the Bible means by justice. As I read the scriptures, I see God's justice being how he deals with everything that is wrong and puts everything right again. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't ignore injustice. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He will deal with it and he will purge evil and punish evil at great cost to himself, even even to the cost of his son dying. And so in the Bible story, this idea of God's justice, it's not the day of judgment, it's sort of tacked on to the end. You know, you're listening to the radio and the adverts come on and there's this super high speed last two seconds bit you can't really hear, but they need to say it anyway. That, that, that's not what we're talking about when it comes to the day of judgment. The sort of terms and conditions. You no, know, the Bible would say the day of judgment is great news. Because it's there where you see justice finally being worked out. Sometimes maybe we think, wow, Jesus, full of grace, full of kindness. He came to die for his people. And that's true, but, but in one sense it's just the first half of the story. And we don't so much like the second half, perhaps. The story's not finished. The king has died. The king was raised again. The tomb was empty. He's ascended. One day he'll come back. We can't forget that, says Paul. Look around at some of the injustice in the world. Look at some of the things that Arthur and Bali were leading us in prayer for. And you look at God and you look at this stuff and you think, well, it doesn't work. If God is just, then how come this stuff happens to his people even? What does it mean? Is, is he not that great? Is he not that strong? Is he, is he sleeping? No, it means the story's not finished. His justice has not been finished yet. There's a second half. Jesus will return. Of course, the other thing we don't like so much, perhaps, is 
when we talk about justice and we talk about Jesus coming to put things right again, the things that are wrong are more often than not wrong because of people. The kind of stuff that people do, which means if we want justice and we want problems to be sorted, then, then that really means we want people to be sorted. So verse 6, God is just, he will, he will pay back trouble to those who have troubled you, to, to give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. We think God's going to pay people back? Is that a bit embarrassing? Primitive? Awkward? But then we watch the news and we think about the reality of problems. Real dark problems, local problems, real issues in your life even. People who, who have hurt you and abused you. And, or again, think about the stuff we were praying for with Arthur and Bali or North Korea or brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering this morning. I mean, putting things right, making things just, sorting things out means dealing with people. It's good news. It means that evil will not have the last say, the last word on our lives. And imagine this. Imagine God didn't judge. Sometimes we think, wow. You know, perhaps if he was a bit more loving, he could just ignore stuff. Just, you know, it's not quite so confrontational. Perhaps we're a bit conflict averse. Maybe he just looked down and he shrugged his shoulders and rolled his eyes and but when if he does that, it means it actually means you don't matter very much. Because what you do doesn't matter very much. And yet for a God of justice, it does matter. I'm aware that these are hard truths for us to, to wrestle with, particularly in our current culture, particularly in the kind of city we live in, the worldview out there. And yet it's good that we do. Because it's the only Jesus there is. He'll give relief as well, verse 7. Maybe at times we might feel isolated. Maybe at times we might feel like, like no one sees, no one knows, no one cares. We're just ignored, too small, too unimportant. Prayers bouncing off the ceiling. And yet one day we'll see that we're not. That he does care. That no one is too small or unimportant or ignored or overlooked. Even if nobody else in all the world sees, God sees. We can trust him. And say, so stand firm. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. God is just. There will be relief. He is good. But then he presses it in a bit further. It's not just that Jesus is just, but that he will punish as well, verse 8 to 10. We need to think about the language he uses. It's kind of 7, 8, 9, and 10. Um, the language he uses is, is Old Testament judgment-style language going on. Language used by the prophets, language of God, promising relief for his people who are being persecuted and oppressed. And yet Paul comes here painting Jesus with, with these kinds of words. Verse 7, it says, he, he will be revealed. Do you see, Jesus is the one whom the Lord has appointed to do the judging. This is not just Paul being overly zealous 
Jesus himself, John 5, says that he has the ability to give life and he's the one who will judge as well. John 5, verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. (coughs) Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgments to the Son. But we've domesticated him. And we've made him tame and we've airbrushed him. And yet he's more than just a friend or a brother. One day we will meet him as judge. And the terrifying thing is there will be no getting away. There will be no hiding from that. Paul uses the language, verse 7, of, of blazing fire. It's vivid, isn't it? Vivid particularly, maybe, we've been watching the news recently again, and you see the bushfires in Australia. We think of the Dents and others visiting Australia at the moment, and thankfully things are dying down there. But just a few weeks ago, if you were watching the news, the terrifying speed with which fire moves and consumes things, you can't avoid it, you can't get away from it. There's a sense in which Jesus, as judge, when he comes in his holiness, will deal with injustice, whether big or small, whatever the impurity, and it will be a terrifying reality, says Paul. Again, it's not just Paul. Jesus, again on his own lips, says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. As he talks of judgment to come. They're hard words. They're not words we like to think about very often. There's a sense in which perhaps they scare us, perhaps our our hearts recoil. They're not really words we're comfortable on lingering over on Sunday morning. I could have spent all my time in verse 11 and 12, but... Now, we need to think about this. It's, it's difficult medicine for us to be taking, but it's good. I wonder why do you think Paul tells us? Why do you think Paul tells the Thessalonians? It's a warning, isn't it? Again, head to Australia, and there are warning bells before the fire comes. Literal telephone warning bells on your phone in your house. There social media, there's TV, there's radio, there's an app you can get. Different categories of warnings right through to number three, the emergency warning, which means run. And yet you hear the sirens and you think, wow, I'm not really that kind of a person, actually. That's not really how I like to see the world. You tell me the fire's coming, but that doesn't really, doesn't really match with my poem for reality. You tell me fire's on its way, but, you know, that's just your truth. It doesn't work, does it? You run. You run. Maybe the danger can be for us as Christians that we give the impression that being a believer is more of a hobby than actually something that is incredibly important. You know, it's the weekend. Some of us like to do park run. Some of us like pottery. Some of us like to swim. Some like to go to church. No, the passages don't work like that. The story of the New Testament, Jesus is not in the realm of hobby, he's in the realm of history. He was born into history. You could look at it on a calendar. If you were in the right place at the right time, you were there. You saw him. He lived in history. He spoke in history. He died in history. 
He was raised again in history. He ascended in history. He will return in history. This is not a hobby. And if I'm honest, I look at myself. I ask the question, do I just try and blend in too much? Maybe, you know, the, the Australian bushfire is coming and I'm, oh, I'm not going to bother to warn the neighbours because... And Paul says, for those who, are, who don't know him, verse 9, they will be shut out, they will be punished. Again, hard words. I think what's going on there is we know him through the gospel and we reject the gospel so you reject him. We're saying we don't want him. and So we're shut out. And this idea of everlasting destruction, I think that means this. I think it means in God's presence, we enjoy life. In God's presence, we enjoy the life that we were made for. And so to walk out on the God of life in one sense means to walk out on on being human, being made in his image. And the more we walk out on him, the more we reject him, the more we say goodbye, the more decreated we become, the further away. The gospel is a call for us to come back. Come back to know him again. Come back. Come and be the person you were created to be. Made in his image. Made to know him and love him and live for him. Some people you speak to about this, maybe this you, will say, well, this doesn't sound fair to me. This doesn't sound fair. God sounds like a monster as I read this. I would rather these verses were not in my Bible. And yet I wonder, as you look at his track record and you look at our track record, humanity's track record, I wonder who is the one more likely to get it wrong? Who is the one to to be unjust or unfair or a monster? I wonder if we look at the evidence of history, we would we would see perhaps, actually, it's us. And Paul pleads with us. He's the klaxon telling us the king is coming back. He's the warning alarm saying, the bushfires are coming. You've got to do something about it. You've got to get right with the king. You need to know him. The thing to do if you've got a bushfire coming apparently, apart from running, is, is to, to, to protect your home or to protect your village. It's fascinating. Again, it was on the news about a month ago. Is, is to burn a patch around your home. To burn a patch around your village. If you know it's coming, you burn the patch in between. Because fire can't burn the same patch twice. And there you stand on that patch and you're safe. And so Jesus the King, Jesus the Just, comes and will judge sin and will burn away our impurities. But what if our sin has already been paid for? What if his judgment has already been satisfied? His justice has happened. What if he, what if he took the judgment that we deserve upon himself? That we might know him, that we might be known by him. What if the one who comes to do the judging is the one who also rescues? What if he comes and says, you know, for your sin, I will pay. Come. Come and take refuge in me. 
So he's just, he will punish. And thirdly, at the end, verse 11 and 12, he will be glorified in them. You see, Paul prays. He prays for this little Thessalonian church being battered and buffeted by suffering, by people looking down on them, hurting them. And he says this, he says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, on the one side, we've got walking out on God. We've got decreation, being dehumanized. But that's not the only option. Because as we return to him, as we trust the king, so he changes us and he makes us alive, increasingly to be the people we were made to be. Not, not shut out from his presence, but rather in his presence and with him restored to the glory. See that word, the glory for which he created us. God's glory in all its brilliance. And we will see that glory, but, but it's more than that. We're not just those as onlookers or those watching or admiring, which, which would be amazing, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's as participants, maybe glorified in you, he says. We, we share some of that glory for ourselves, made in his image, restored to that image, in all his beauty and all his brilliance, starting now, but going on forever. And it's not just a kind of theoretical glory, sort of floating along type glory, but it's very practical, the things he prays for, that his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. It's the kind of things we want in our hearts, perhaps, the kind of things that we do, our hands increasingly to be the people that we were made to be in his image, that they, might, that they might continue, they might press on. That we might, because, because we know he's coming back. This is not a hobby. Being a Christian is, just, is not just what you do on a Sunday morning. No, no, Paul's very clear that the story's not finished. One day the king will return and there will be justice. And it's true, isn't it? When, you, when you're clear on what the future holds, when we allow ourselves perhaps to be impacted by that, then maybe we're clearer on, on what it means to, to live now, the things that matter now. And so Maudlin Road, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't drift off. Don't turn back. Stand firm. Because one day he'll return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that we find passages like this, verses like this, complicated, hard for us because of the way so often we, 
We domesticate you. We domesticate the Lord Jesus. And yet we thank you that one day he is returning. He will come back. Thank you that justice will be seen. Thank you that... Thank you that we know this is not the end of the story. But that he's coming back now in the future. Thank you for... Thank you for what that means for those of us who are suffering, perhaps who have been persecuted, for whom life is hard. Thank you for brothers and sisters around the world who can cling on to and grip onto these truths. Help us to come to terms with them ourselves. Help us to know that because Jesus is returning, so that should shape how we live now, shape the things that matter to us, shape the way we spend our time and our resources and our money. Be at work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.